0: Greetings, and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the big finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is Kevin Koser, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G.
1: Hey, Kevin. How's life? Life's good.
0: What story do you have this week?
1: Well, this week we have the eighth Doctor story, Embrace the Darkness. We've had a couple of decent eighth Doctor stories in a row now, so we've had Chimes of Midnight and Seasons of Fear, but Embrace the Darkness is something altogether different. But before I let loose on what I think of it, what did you think of it, Kevin?
0: When I first listened to this story, just sort of explaining the range for the first time, I thought good things about it. It's a lot of interesting ideas. The Eighth Doctor and Charlie are well-characterized. And it definitely offers some pretty interesting twists. I still think those things, though, oh my god, it's so boring. <laughs> and I don't know how I didn't think of that, like or register that when I first listened to this. But having to, I guess, actually pay attention to it instead of just sort of passively consuming it. So many scenes are redundant and repeat themselves, and it hits the same points over and over again. And all those interesting ideas are just all the meat the story has. It doesn't have good characterizations to flesh them out. It doesn't have very interesting sort of direction to make it pop. It just sort of slogs you through as ever all of the things Briggs had on his mind, and it just falls very flat.
1: This is, without question, the most boring play we have covered so far in my view. I know that we were quite hard on Winter for the Adept, but at least Winter for the Adept tried to do something interesting with Nyssa. It wasn't successful, but at least it tried. This is just so dull. It took me such an effort of will to get through all four episodes. Normally, the way that I work is I normally listen to an episode a day. And then after I've listened to the fourth one, I, I sit down and I type up some notes or some thoughts or whatever so that I've got something to build up. Um I finished listening to this one just today because I really, I put this off having to go back to it to finish it. And after I'd done it, I just sat looking at a blank piece of paper going, I've got nothing. I, I've, it's just so dull. I, I know that I've listened to this before. Because I remembered the cliffhanger to episode one, um, where uh, Charlie reveals that uh, the two characters have had their eyes removed. I remember that cliffhanger. And that one moment, that, those five seconds or maybe ten seconds, India Fisher acts her sucks off. And she delivers that cliffhanger perfectly. The previous 29 and a half minutes or 29 minutes and 50 seconds or whatever it was, nothing. I remembered nothing about it. And, and yeah, it's because it's just really, really dull.
0: Yeah, I remember the first cliffhanger too, and it's so good. Like there are some moments in the story that are so good. And that's an obvious standout. The Your eyes, your eyes are gone. Like that is such a great use of the audio medium to sort of like throw us off guard. And it's such sort of a funny story to have us in the dark as much as the characters are for most of it. But mm, so much of this is just bickering and arguing. Like half of the story is a doctor arguing with the computer, which is a great idea. A lot of his like sort of logical arguments are very clever and very interesting, but he has to do it a dozen times. There's only so much I can take of that. And, It's very clever and intriguing the first three times. And then for the rest of it, you're just like, again, Razum is just screwing with them. And I hate this.
1: Oh, yeah. That gets so repetitive so quickly. And there's just so little here that seems to matter it's not that doctor who can't work when the stakes are low it absolutely can work when the stakes are low but in order to have stakes in a story like this you need to be able to have some kind of emotional investment in the characters that are being presented to you and i find that impossible i just didn't care about any of them except maybe for Oh, uh, Orlenza. I did care about her in the sense that I absolutely hated her. She's oh, a,
0: that's where it's going. She's an,
1: uh, she's an awful character played badly. She's just terrible. I can't say that she was dull. She definitely provoked a reaction from me. Unfortunately, that reaction was, I don't want to have to spend any more time listening to this whiny brat it's it's just you can have characters who are obnoxious or you can have characters who are you know very grating or in, in conflict with the docks or whatever it is just absolutely fine there's nothing wrong with that in theory but in practice i just find her so hard to listen to even less to care about she found her impossible to care about and it just and that weird accent it was it south african or russian or space accent or I, I don't know what the hell it was but it was not successful and that coupled with the character just made it impossible to take seriously
0: it's a weird sort of story that i don't think they fully develop i can't tell if it's intentional or not but you have halliard uh, one of the other crewmates who goes insane and then Orlenza seems like angry for a lot of the story, especially past that first episode, and Ferris seems scared. And then when they get healed by the end, a lot of that goes away. Halliard very obviously is sane again, but also when Orlenza's eyes are fixed, she becomes a lot more sedate and agreeable. I wonder if that was the point, if losing her eyes, she was also sort of psychically damaged and that needed to be healed, but they don't ever call that out. And so it's a very sort of strange decision then. They just have her act like an absolute jerk for two whole episodes and just make you hate her. And then suddenly she's fixed and she's just going to go along agreeing and just be sort of fading into the background. And that's it. And so that's, I don't really understand what they're trying to do with her or with the other two, Ferris and Hallier, who are just absolute duds. I, I, can't really describe anything about them beyond those broad strokes i mentioned earlier that i just don't know what briggs is trying to do with these characters
1: i think and i will be the first to admit that this is maybe a, a quite a generous interpretation but i think what he's trying to do uh with the fact that uh, orlanza becomes a better person once she gets her sight back i think it's trying to do a sort of like it's trying to draw a thematic line so the you have the idea of like where people are in darkness they are sort of prejudiced and terrified of these aliens and assume the worst and so as they get their sight back you know they literally sort of walk into the light as it were you know they become more enlightened they become less prejudiced and more understanding I think that's the thematic sort of l- through line that the, the play is going for but if it is I do not think it is particularly well articulated and if it is I also think it's a bit kind of you know it's a bit fifth grade school kind of way of oh darkness so like yeah they're dead prejudice and they like light so they can see again and they're like oh no. it's it's nah i i don't know I, that's that's the best interpretation i can, can come up with and even if that is what he was going for it still it doesn't feel like it works
0: That is a very intriguing interpretation and i mean it is very hokey but this is doctor who it can make hokeyness <laughs> work very well but If he wanted to do that and make it work, for once in my life, I'm going to say, Doctor Who could have stood to be less subtle. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's just, there's no indication that's what he's going for. There's no indication that he's really trying anything bigger thematically, just beyond maybe you shouldn't judge his aliens by what you think of them just because they have creepy whisper voices that we're going to play out of context to make you think they're evil But, oh no, they're just talking about getting rid of the light for innocent reasons. That's really dumb. Like, how else are you supposed to interpret what they're saying when we get this sort of omniscient sort of drop ins on them talking to each other beyond like they're clearly evil aliens? I mean, and it's a nice twist to have the aliens not be evil for once. It's a very, I like the idea of the twist a lot. It should have been in a much better story. I wish there was a better story backing that sort of fun idea where. There wasn't any threat at all that's i don't know it's so dumb in this story but it could have been brilliant the idea that the doctor and the crew get all worked up and paranoid over literally no threat it's a twist played twice too with the sumerians and then the solarians the twist is they weren't in any danger at all and the only real danger was how paranoid they got but it feels so weightless here because of how their actions don't really affect anything and it feels so silly and dumb because of how little I can care about the characters and how sort of botched and execution these ideas are.
1: Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a story which ends on a constructive note rather than a destructive one. That's absolutely fine. And there's a couple of examples in in sort of the the TV show, where that's definitely true, like Terminus, for example. Okay, not everybody would say Terminus is the story that you want to shoot for, but nevertheless, it is an example of a story which ends on a constructive conclusion rather than with a big explosion or or aliens being defeated or whatever. So I'm I'm in agreement with with you on that. I think that's a perfectly fine goal to have it's it's almost uh it's almost noble in a way to kind of play against type in that way but yeah it, it needs to be in a much much stronger story and if you're going to have that kind of conclusion it needs to feel like it's a conclusion which is earned and i think that's what's definitely missing here there's there's no sense that the uh crew earn any kind of redemption it's not really even a redemption at all it's just a kind of Uh, okay right well they're fine then it's just it's kind of it's very passive i suppose and and the fact as you said that you get the same twist twice makes the second time it happened even less interesting because well we've already had it once so well it just comes across as padding because we've still got another few minutes to fill before the end credits roll but that doesn't make any sense because there's no fixed length of time for an episode to run for in the first place so it feels like padding in a story that doesn't need to have padding anyway it's it's yeah it's it's not a well-constructed story at all.
0: Oh, my God. Talk about padding. Only one of the episodes falls under the 30-minute mark. And really, these big finish stories, I think, ideally, should be shooting for, like, 25 minutes an episode, in my opinion, unless you have something, like, really a lot to say. Like, *Chains of Midnight can break the rules as much as it wants. But when you're Embrace the Darkness, <laughs> shoot for 25 minutes an episode, please. And uh, so much of this is just a lot of repetitive dialogue. Characters... Catching up other characters and things already that have happened, characters like arguing with each other over pointless things. Like I said, again, we get a dozen co- arguments with the robot, which turns into some sort of really weak 2001 stuff. And to get on that, I think the problem with the story is his lack of consequences. Rosam is, I guess, the biggest villain in the story. He never does anything quite like Hal 9000, he never kills anyone, he's just a nuisance. And Orlenza, Ferris, and Halliard, they never attack the aliens and try to kill them. That would give the story some actual weight and stakes and make those sort of screw up that these are actually peaceful aliens, like, feel something more. It'd be a bummer, and maybe not the direction I want Doctor Who to go in, but it would make it a better story in and of itself because there's actual stakes happening, there's an actual screw up. And so the closest thing we get to a screw up is the Doctor attracting Solarians to the planet, which winds up working in their favor so why even bother giving the doctor that moral conflict if it's just going to be so easily resolved and even then it's so it's so pointless because the doctor does this what seems at the time a screw up he attracts the Sumerians, what seems at the time enemy back to the planet and goes to them to apologize and crucify himself which is also extremely dumb. And thankfully, Charlie's yet to call it extremely dumb in the story, but it still feels a little over the top for the Doctor. He's had some ridiculous moments, but I don't know. Very end of Runaway Bride, which is also a moment I hate. But besides that, he does that and he suffers no consequences. Samarian's like, oh, one of our own people is dead, but that's all right. Just go on your way. And the Solarian's arrive, and like, oh, we're actually nice. That's all right. Go on your way. It's all just so weightless and silly.
1: Well, I think if I had to pick a description uh, for this story, I think the one I would go for is self-indulgent. There's something very self-indulgent about this story. Um, It's, at least in part... Uh, that has to land at the feet of Nicholas Briggs. Uh, He wrote it, he directed it, uh, he did the music for it. So if there are any failings in Embrace the Darkness, they they are absolutely his responsibility. And there are many, many failings here. Like you you, you mentioned Rosam as being uh, this kind of... uh, antagonist, really the only antagonist in the piece. But the thing with Rosum is that he's completely motive-free. He has absolutely no motivation because he's just a robot. He's just responding to programming. There's no sense that this is an artificial intelligence or that there's some kind of you know emergent intelligence or, or whatever it is. He's just a robot performing uh, a, a pre-planned sequence of events. So... Even the principal antagonist here has literally no motivation. He just, yeah, he's just an annoyance to keep the plot rolling until, you know, the end of the fourth episode. And and that's just so fatally undermining it. And we've uh, covered uh, Nick Briggs before, and the very first Nick Briggs story we covered was uh, sort of Orion. And that has the same slight feeling of self-indulgence, where it just kind of rambles along whilst he writes something that he wants to talk about, uh, and then it stops. And he is capable of being a really great writer. I don't want to suggest that Nick Briggs is is a bad writer, but his gifts definitely fail him here. And as with um, sort of Orion, there's something very Eric Sayward about this, where we're stuck in sort of, cramped, confined spaces. You can just so easily picture the kind of the, the sets, you know, it would look a bit like Earthshock probably, uh, you know, the freighter sequences in Earthshock. It would have the same sort of small studio feel to it. It's just, it's just got all that. The, all, even the music cues sound kind of sayward. You have that thing where where somebody obviously has a, a pitch bend wheel and they just slide it down. It's, it's very... Of that era, and it it makes it feel very indistinct. One of the things that's been great, especially about the last couple of Eighth Doctor stories, is they felt like this is the Eighth Doctor's era. It's not aping another era of the show, but this does feel like it's aping another era of the show, and it is absolutely not to its benefit.
0: Yeah, we need to cover Creatures of Beauty sometime soon so we have positive things to say about him. <laughs> because in this case, uh for now, I just have to say it's not a great story at all. And it really shows a sort of lack of ambition or creativity just to have it on these sort of space sets. I mean, you're dealing with a whole new planet here that they're coming down on. And we spend the whole time either on a base built by humans or on a rescue ship built by humans, talking about things from afar, looking at things on scanners. It really could have easily been done for TV, which... Why do it for audio then? You should be pushing audio further since you don't have to worry about a budget for visual effects. But instead, the most creative sequence we get is the Doctor and Charlie being dragged down into the sort of Sumerian home or cave. Even that isn't very well realized. You don't give much of a description of it. Just sort of really neat image of the Sumerians who can sort of walk through walls, pulling them with them to this space. But beyond that, it's very sort of flatly realized. There's not a lot of description, not a lot of sense of place. It's very vague.
1: Well, I agree with what you said earlier about the fact that the, the the one thing the story does get right is is the the reveal at the end of episode one, and the, but more importantly, kind of the build-up to that. It, it uses the audio medium well, so Charlie gets this opportunity to reveal something which would be strikingly obvious to somebody who's watching it, but of course is completely not obvious to somebody who's only listening to it. That's a nice conceit, but it needed to have so much more done with it in order for that to really kind of come through once it's had that sort of moment in the first episode it never really happens again and you know this is a reasonably well produced story i think and and the sort of sort of giggling childlike voices are are, they're well put together but unusually this feels like a case of the production sort of helping to make up the shortfall in the script rather than it being something which is enhancing the script, um, by which I kind of mean that it's just... I mean, it is well put together, and I know we sort of generally avoid talking about uh, production, but it's just, yeah, it, it feels like um, they've found a way of, of of making these little voices work. But it's it's because, on the other side, there's there's no real character or motivation to make it work, so, so the sound effects kind of have to make up that difference. And, again, that feels like a terrible mistake.
0: Yeah. I don't, yeah, the sound design is really good here like brings us an adequate job I like I really like the Sumerians how they sound mm-hmm. and their sort of whispery voice is very creepy but then also very sweet and so it hits the balance it needs to well because they have to seem sort of creepy and evil at first but then get revealed to be just this sort of innocent ch- childlike aliens and it works really well so there are aspects of that that really work he just can't get the middle parts right he just can't make them resonate well and is stuck hitting similar beats over and over again because he doesn't really know what else to do
1: you're right they they do work but that it also feels like this is a default for big finish the reason that we don't talk about production is because it's almost great it's very very rare that there's a shortfall there so this it's it's Big Finish's default mode, that they always get this stuff right. So if that bit is always right, then it, it, it completely falls on the sh- shoulders of the script to kind of come to that sort of level on a, on a plotting or a character or a motivational basis. And and that's absent here. And the thing, the thing I find most telling about Embrace the Darkness is for the first time, I think Paul McGann doesn't give a brilliant performance. He sounds actively bored by the time the third episode rolls around, and I don't blame him at all. um, You know, because I was definitely bored by the time the third episode rolled around. But he's just—he's really not at the top of his game here. And whether that's because he's read the script and just can't get motivated by it, or whatever—I don't know. It's—it's not for me to judge. But it just. He sounds very flat here, especially that cliffhanger that that he gets uh, with the line, uh, well, we have the knowledge, Charlie, but it looks like that knowledge might die with us. Ah. (laughs) Cue title music. It's so bad, and he sounds so uninvested in delivering these lines, which I absolutely, as I say, cannot blame him for at all. But it's just, yeah... I mean, it's so rare that you get anything other than a spectacular performance from Paul McGann. It really stands out that he's not at his best here.
0: At least India Fisher pulls her weight, I think. She's not giving a spectacular performance by any means, but she's giving like an on-par performance for sure. And I think that contrast is best uh, shown in that sort of, like I said, sort of crucifixion moment where the doctor goes to them. Paul McGann sounds extremely bored and not giving the moment the weight it needs to come across even remotely sort of well it's really a flat moment but india fisher is really bringing her rage and her frustration the doctor to the fore there that i really like and it's a really good point like the character charlie is making too the doctor shouldn't just like throw himself on a sword when he has a companion to think about when he has people he needs to save and which makes the moment all the more baffling but at least india fisher is selling that rage very well and she is, feels like a very important part to the Doctor, and it makes Charlie feel like she's very justified in what she's feeling.
1: Well, it's back to that note of self-indulgence again, isn't it? The Doctor is being very self-indulgent, and Charlie is absolutely correct to call him out in that, you know, he's, he's being selfish, basically, um, he's, you know, it's the whole white knight syndrome, you know, he must do this, this noble sacrifice, and, uh, sort of basically to hell with anybody else, and, yeah, Fisher absolutely grabs that moment and runs with it, we also mentioned, uh, the, the episode one cliffhanger, she's terrific there, and, and she really underplays, and that's not a common thing for, for Charlie, she, she tends to be sort of a little bit more playing, playing to the back rows, I don't mean that as a criticism, but that's, that's the nature of Charlie. She's she's chipper and she's optimistic and she's an adventurous and all the rest of it. That's fine. That's where you want the character to be. But just this once, she she really she brings it way way down, and and it's a fantastic moment. Yeah, she, I think she's by far the best uh, acting on display here, and and it's just such a shame that all the good work that she's being put in is in, in service of so very little.
0: I just really wish we could have gotten the version of the story where everyone was just more on top of their game. Cause like I said, there's some ideas I really love here. And it's really sort of sad to see McGann and the rest of the non cast sort of flop a bit, flop around a bit, not really sure what to do. And it's really a shame that uh, Briggs sort of writes these very overdrawn sort of scenes that don't really make much progress. Because I don't know, there's just a lot to do with the setting. I think we've talked about "Whispers of Terror" before, and that story isn't quite solid enough, I think, for us to ever cover it. There's some really fantastic things done with like the audio medium—things that the characters can't see but we can hear—and again, a lot could be done here with this dark planet. Like we have blind characters and sort of lights being snuffed out left and right, and we could have played around with that a lot. Instead it becomes so much of a non-issue and a lot more focus is put on the doctor just sort of throwing lights up in the air and then focusing on his perspective, which sort of takes that power it had away from us. The power that some of those really great scenes in episode one have where Orlenza, Ferris and Hallie are being tortured, which I think is like one of the few really interesting things the story does is sort of get that sort of chill down your spine at the beginning. And, It loses that momentum very quickly, but it really makes the Sumerians seem to be quite a threat when you get those torture scenes in early on. But then it really wastes that creepy momentum and atmosphere very quickly with the very repetitive and boring scenes.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned Whispers of Terror because that crossed my mind as well. But I think Justin Richards' writing in Whispers of Terror is notably stronger than Brix's writing here. I'm I'm a big defender of Whispers of Terror. I I'm 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 quite the fan. But yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's interesting that it's able to do those things with the audio medium and, and, and make it work through the, the whole length of the play. Whereas you say here, we get a little bit of it in episode one and then the kind of the blindness and, and all that kind of thing just falls away. And that feels like yeah, that feels like such a waste. That that should really be the core component of, of what the play should be doing it should be finding interesting expressive ways um you know they look like they're going to do that at one point because we're aware that charlie's eyes are being sort of slowly taken away but then she gets better so that's that's you know nice i guess but it doesn't, you know, that was a perfect opportunity there, especially since the play already basically fixes everybody by the end of it. It would be okay if, if something happened to Charlie, like having her eyes taken. So we get to be much more kind of personally involved in what's going on. We have much more kind of direct line to the action and to the experiences and to the, the discombobulation that can happen when, when you lose your sight, you know. It's, that's, that's where I feel the focus should be. But, you know, Charlie's fine, so we don't get that. That's a shame.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, because to be sort of vague about it for spoiler reasons, but we're going to come up on the stories where some really awful, (laughs) terrible, and seemingly permanent stuff is going to happen to Charlie that's going to get reversed by the end. And it's weird that they don't play that card here. As much as that card is going to annoy me as we get to those stories, it's weird that when you already are going to give an out and fix these deal by the end, why not throw Charlie in too? Like, raise the stakes. This is maybe a bit hypocritical when I talk about how much I don't like obviously permanent things that get undone by the end of the story. At least here, it would have given some tension that it needs. And I think that's how bad the story is, that I would have taken something that's an obvious ploy to fake raise the stakes, if only to raise the stakes in any way beyond the very sort of just morass we get here of nothing feeling like it's very important.
1: Yeah, exactly that. And I think if there was going to be something like that in this play, you know, we can also have the idea sort of reasonably early on that it is possible for for some conditions to be reversed or you can have hints put in the play that this isn't going to be a a permanent change to to Charlie or to, to the other characters. So it doesn't have to fall back in that trope of, oh my God, something terrible and absolutely definitely permanent has happened to this guy. No, they're fine. It doesn't have to go for that troll, but this play isn't nearly sophisticated enough to be able to to sort of navigate those those waters. And yeah, as a result, it, it just feels like yet another in a long line of missed opportunities.
0: I'm really struggling to think about what other missed opportunities we have left to talk about. Uh, I, I made my thoughts very clear, but I don't think you've ever talked about Rosam yet. Uh, what do you think about our knockoff Hell 9000? <laughs> um
1: well, I'll, I'll start with the kindest thing that I can say about it, which is I think Ian Brooker does quite well with what he's given. He manages to give um, a little bit of, I suppose, personality is not quite the right word, but distinctiveness, maybe, to Rosam, and that's nice it it's not just you know a vocoder or a voice box or something so there's a little bit of of something there and it's not his fault that he's been given material which is so flatly uninspiring or that he's asked to basically replay the same scenes a dozen times that's that's not his fault or his responsibility um so i think he does okay with with what he's given um but the the, the robot itself is just so who cares there's just there's no there's no reason to care about him. And uh, like one little tick that I liked, which is a very minor thing, is the way that rather than just saying, I am malfunctioning or I'm breaking down or whatever, he starts describing things as a percentage probability of reality. That's that's quite nice. I quite like that. That's, that's a little bit different. It's a slightly different perspective or a slightly different angle to take from, you know, yet another malfunctioning robot. That's nice. But he does it so damn many times that it just by the end of it, it's, it just becomes another sort of smeared kind of blur in this whole blender of stuff that we have to listen to. And, and again, I... I don't want to blame uh, Ian Brooker for that. that. That's not his fault. Um, so again, we have we have like the little seeds, a little, a little sort of germ of a good idea there, but just it, it's it's ruined by by repetition and and not basically having sort of Nick Briggs understand his own kind of core concepts. He he's got a good idea there. He just he just doesn't know what to do with it. And yeah, I, I, by the end, it's just it's very difficult to care about Rossum. Who who cares?
0: Yeah, that sums up pretty much what I thought, too. Uh, Rosam, it's such a great idea of thinking about robots and how literally minded they are. And what it would be like to sort of argue with it and try to logically loop around it. It's a very old sci-fi trope, but it can be done well. And like I think, like I said, the first few times I'm into it, like Paul McGann, and that's also when Paul McGann sees the most into the story is those first few times arguing with Rosam and trying to convince him that Charlie is safe and try to work his way into his trust. And there's an interesting dynamic where Rosam doesn't trust the doctor necessarily. And then we get into, well, what does robot trust even mean? How is he processing it? And so, yeah, Nicholas Briggs is onto something here. But the way he uses it is like with that's just a sledgehammer to always make Rosin this obstacle in the way and always slow down the story and pad for time. It could have been such a fantastic idea if well executed, but he doesn't get beyond the first layer. He doesn't get any deeper. He uses them as a tool to prolong the story, and that's where it falls apart.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably a perfectly fair Thing to say about them and you know when we have we're talking about sort of um, ferris and hallard and orlenza as well it's it's not that there's sort of no attempt to give them sort of definition or, or sort of character traits or something for the audience to invest in so you have that there's that little thing about them sort of playing checkers together and you know how they've got this kind of friendly rivalry going on that's that's a nice attempt to to try and show a little bit more shading it's it's something about the characters that isn't directly related to the plot but it's also really badly done i'm sorry to say so again i i appreciate the idea i have to say that it also is, is partly the performances um i don't think um either really come across well um and that that kind of detracts about it it's all oh my god oh my god oh well we're all mitty again no it, it, the, the, neither character neither actor are capable of, of sort of making that shift uh, smoothly, or at any rate believably. Um, so that's a shame. But again, it's that same thing. It's there is a there's a germ of an idea there, but it just it just it never grows.
0: Uh, before we start repeating ourselves as much as Nicholas Briggs does, let's end this discussion by talking about the ending. Um, it's such a non-ending. I mean, we get the twist that the Solarians are Sumerians who evolved differently because they left the planet. And are coming back to sort of reunite with the people they left behind, and I don't know. It's not really well explained. I know the Sumerians were of healing a plague on themselves. They don't really button it with like the, all different explanations. But what I can gather is the Sumerians who were healing a plague of the Solarians, who turned out to be Sumerians, so healing their own plague that was killing a lot of them. So they block out their son to drive themselves away, and then they come back to save them. It's very murky. Now <laughs> I'm trying to explain it, it doesn't make any sense.
1: Uh, no, it, it doesn't make any sense. And you know that, um, all they're the same species. It's crap. And I don't know how else to say It's the same. The thing that, I, it, this isn't really, um, I mean, this is, this is the very opposite of a recommendation. Um, but it's the same thing that uh, the movie Star Trek Insurrection has. Uh, you have uh, the Baku and the Sona. And they're they turn out to be the same species, even though they're they're uh, technically at war against each other or or hate each other or, or whatever. It's crap there, it's crap here, it's not a good that, that like writers don't do that. This doesn't work. Or if it does work, I've never seen a good example of it. Um but it just it annoyed me so much because that feels like such a it feels like such a cheap way of of you know, trying to resolve this story. And Fine, as I said before, it's, it's okay that there's a constructive ending rather than a destructive one. And that's obviously one way to get to that point. But it's like, oh, so we're all the same. And it, it, it doesn't give the story anywhere to go. It doesn't give any kind of emotional conclusion. There's no catharsis. There's no nothing. It just, oh, right, so stop. And it's got that really, that episode four ending where it just stops and then goes straight into the credits. It's really, it's really abrupt and it it doesn't, that makes the story feel even more kind of lightweight and dismissible than it already was because it's it's that ha ha ha, Jokey Seed in the TARDIS and we're off to our next adventure. It's just, there's no, it's not, if you're going to have that kind of conclusion, you also need to have something, which sort of follows on from it. You don't have to have a, so, now we explain the point of this story, kind of seen at the end, but you want something which gives a degree of emotional resonance to what it is that's being experienced here, and that's completely absent.
0: Yeah, it's such a frustrating non-ending. It just stops, and we don't get any explanation, we don't get any catharsis, we don't, we just don't get any real info to how the fate of the crew is going to go. Charlie finishes up her game of drafts with a great joke. And then they're off. There's can't remember what the final line is. It's not even that memorable. It's a very disappointing conclusion. And I don't know what else to say. I guess this discussion has have to, have to have a very disappointing conclusion as well. I can't yeah. think of any way to button it.
1: Yeah, me neither. Let's just stop. It's time to move on and talk about something more interesting. And of course, that means we're going to turn to our mailbag. So, um, Kevin, let's see what's in the mailbag this week.
0: We have two returning letter writers, and the first is from Kelly, and he writes that he has a few more recommendations for us off of our Big Finish and Beyond episode. First off, he seconds recommendations of uh, Sapphire and Steel and The Prisoner, so it's always nice to hear and Within the Wires. I was great to hear that. I love to hear other Within the Wires fans. It really doesn't get its fair shake in the podcast fiction world, I don't think. And he gives the recommendation of X-1, a great American anthology show from the 50s. They're public domain and pretty easy to find online, he writes. Stories by some of the genre's greatest writers are produced brilliantly. As a starting point, he recommends There Will Come Soft Rains, Knock, or Robert Sheckley's hysterical Early Model. And that was a big form of experience for listening to Big Finish. And so... Yeah, I've heard about X minus one, too. It's been recommended to me. I should really check it out sometime because it really does sound like a very key piece in the sort of sci-fi audio drama world.
1: It's one that I've heard of, but honestly, I've not heard of it for a very long time. So I, I really appreciated getting this email and, and sort of having my, my memory poked. So, yeah, I, I agree. I'm, this is definitely something that I want to check out in the future. And I love those old radio shows. I I I, I just think they're so fantastic. And I really, really do feel... That that you know, for all I, I realize, we've just spent sort of half an hour slagging off uh, the last play, but in general, I really do feel that that big finish are 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 such a, a key continuation of that that form that method of, of of writing drama, and I think it's a very sort of distinct method of writing drama as well. It's it's very it's not the same as writing uh, play. It's, i don't I, I' always refer to them as plays, um, but it 's not the same as writing a, a stage play let's say for for theater it 's certainly not the same as writing an episode of uh, television it 's a very specific and distinct form, and I, I think it's worth sort of mentioning and drawing attention to that just simply because we cover it all the time, so we take it as a sort of de facto norm that this is how you know these are written this is how these are produced but it's, it's so far away from de facto norm. It's untrue. that Hardly anybody does this anymore. But it used to be such a vast medium. And so to be able to get a recommendation like this for something which is so kind of similar and such a great antecedent of, of something like Big Finish, it's, it's a terrific recommendation. I'm really, really looking forward to checking it out.
0: Yeah, that sounds great too. You also have another letter from a frequent writer, Dan. And he writes, first off, he has some more recommendations for us the audio drama Nebulous from BBC Radio 4, which is a parody of the Third Doctor era starring Mark Gaddis. Very familiar name. So, yeah, that might be worth checking out. He also has an internet recommendation, The Minister of Chance, a fantasy series inspired by Doctor Who, featuring notably Paul McGann and Sylvester McCoy, the latter of whom swears up a storm in a way that is delightfully unsettling from a former Doctor. Um, Having been used to Peter Capaldi's performance, I am used to a Doctor Who's sworn before... But that McCoy swearing sounds like a great prospect, so I've only given a cursory glance at it, but there's a lot of other recognizable names too Jenny gutter, not Doctor Who, but definitely known so yeah, it does seem interesting i'll have to give it a listen
1: um, I've actually listened to the Minister of Chance, and I did think about talking about it when we when we did a big finish and beyond episode i've got to be honest it's not. My favorite thing that I've ever listened to. There's there are a couple of uh, really interesting performances in it. Paul McGann is always uh, you know fabulous to to listen to whatever he's doing. So there's absolutely no sense in which uh, I want to criticize him. I I, I hugely enjoy his work uh, and it's it's I don't know it's a strange it's a strange thing it feels like it's kind of wants to be part of doctor who and yet it's very distinctively not a part of doctor who it reminds me a little bit of that slightly uneasy relationship that faction paradox have with uh, doctor who they they sort of they were a part of doctor who and then they're not a part of doctor who and and with this there's, there's so many familiar names that you know it can't help but feel part of it and and the idea i think think i'm right in saying that this was originally the minister of chance was going to be a time lord but then there was something else and then the whole thing became its its own uh its own play or a completely separate entity apart from doctor who and and so it's it's i think it's a really interesting listen i don't know whether i would call it a completely successful one but i think it's really really fascinating and i think if you're interested in kind of to excuse the, the the phrase, but the worlds of Doctor Who, then I think it's, uh, I think it's well worth a listen. I, I don't know that it's a complete success, but it, it's definitely something which is, is worth spending time with. All
0: right. That does sound interesting. I'll have to at least check it out. Um, he also has some thoughts on Chimes of Midnight. He mostly gives an appraisal of the story, but has one main problem with it, and it's the way the story depicts the working class having no real existence outside of the people they serve. In his words, Edith calls Charlie her best friend because she was the only person in the house to show her kindness. That is, out of her employers and coworkers, Household staff are not friends and family outside their work. It is not implausible that one individual might have not have had those things, but there's no reason given for her isolation from her peers, and it looks at, like the writer hasn't really thought about it. On its own, this wouldn't be a huge problem, but it's made much worse by the ending. Charlie is called upon to give this woman a reason to go on living, And what does she come up with? I'll remember you. Seriously? The only reason Charlie and Rob Shearman can give that this woman is worthy of life is because one of her oppressors will remember her fondly. That while she's toiling away at life she finds empty, lonely, and meaningless, she can at least be safe in the knowledge that the spoilt, ungrateful brat she used to work for will occasionally try to remember her while adventuring across the universe. I will tell you this if Lucy Bleedon Miller had been there, she would have come with a better reason than that. (laughs) The fact you said that the fact that Charlie will remember Edith and keep her in her heart means that Edith matters. That isn't what that shows. What it shows is that Edith's life only has worth in relation to her oppressors, which is, I gotta say, it at least goes there. It's definitely a different spin on it. And I don't know. I do think there's a good point in that Edith does get the raw deal here. And in order to have this happy ending, we sort of have to sort of shut our eyes a bit and just think to ourselves, well, at least it'll be okay. On the other hand, I don't really know much, much more of a positive ending she could have being someone born into a very bad situation at a bad time. And I, I wish there was some way to save her without sort of completely upending the sort of bittersweet nature of the story.
1: But I don't know. What do you think? Um... I understand the point that he's making but I think um I think she does matter in the end and and even if it is only a small sort of recompense for for the life that uh, Edith has had the fact that there is somebody out there uh, that's prepared to remember her that's prepared to recognize her I I think it does have some meaning but I think it has meaning because it's very obvious that um throughout the play Charlie's attitude towards Edith changes. It it is a fair criticism to say that Edith probably only is really there um, to sort of mot- not to motivate this change in Charlie, but to to uh, highlight it, to to demonstrate the way that Charlie is changing. Um, but that's also that's kind of the point of the Change of Midnight. It it it's that Charlie is changing, not just in terms of her um, sort of. Temporal paradox thing, mean, but as an individual, she's she's grown and she's developed and she's she's come to understand that that's that's what the story is really about. I think, and and yeah, it is sad that Edith uh, doesn't really earn uh, a happy ending for herself, but but that's also kind of that's sort of true to life, really. Those those people who were you know the below the stairs people, they they did have terrible lives; they often were very badly treated forgotten disregarded you know that's that that feels that there's a degree of historical accuracy to the way that edith would have been isn't that doesn't make it an easy thing to listen to but i i do think that's sort of slightly the point i mean i do agree with dan that when he says that, that lucille miller would have found a very different way to deal with the situation absolutely that's completely true but again that feels to me uh, a little bit like the point this is very specific to to how Charlie is and how Charlie reacts to situations. Um, And so, yeah, it's uncomfortable the way that Edith is is sort of basically treated and abused and and that she's kind of used up by this family. But, you know, yeah, that's that's what the play's about. It's about the working classes being used up by by the people who are above the stairs. And and for me, I find that element works absolutely fine, although I do completely understand where Dan is coming from.
0: I think the way you just have to approach it is this is Charlie's story. And for most of it, Edith is a plot device and not much of a character in and of herself. And that is unfortunate for Edith's character. I mean, she's not, she has to get shortchanged for the story to sort of be what the story is. And it's unfortunate, but I can't really levy that as a criticism as Sherman, since there's only so much he could do. And so it rankles a bit, but I think it rankles in a good way. And I think it also, like I said, I can't, something has to give. We can't spend another half hour fleshing out Edith and finding a way to give her a happy ending without sort of betraying all the hardship she's been put through before and betraying the sort of darker themes of the story. So I'm sort of more comfortable with it, but it does raise very good food for
1: thought. Oh, absolutely. And I I greatly appreciate the fact that this is a, a different perspective. One of the things I really love about sort of doing this show and and getting emails from people is, I think you and I we, we're often quite on the same page. Not always. We we do disagree over some things. Um, but it's really nice to have kind of people writing in and give us uh, different perspectives. And, you know, it's not just about us all agreeing with each other, but it's about having a genuine debate over the material that we're discussing and, and you know, the, the the plays that we're covering. And so, uh, yeah, I just want to say thanks to Dan and thanks to everyone uh, who writes in. It really is great to have this opportunity to be able to discuss things that, that maybe we didn't talk about or things that didn't occur to us when we were discussing the, the, the plays. So, yeah, thanks. I really I, I really. Really appreciate that.
0: Yes. It's great to have other points of view. And the other main reason I want people to write into us is also covered in Dan's letter. One last note. He asks, if you ever want to grab a bag of short stories so we can talk about Spider's Shadow, and idea we've floated before, a couple of suggestions are Urgent Calls and You Are the Doctor, and if short trips count Sock Pig, all of which I love. Also, speaking of short stories... If we don't get the chance to talk about The Word Lord or special features, I am quitting the podcast because I love those <laughs> two so much.
1: We will be talking about The Word Lord. I absolutely love The Word Lord. Uh, and and uh, just uh, I'm not going to talk about it now, but I adore The Word Lord. We will definitely be covering that at some point.
0: Yeah, so um, a lot of these short stories were made much later in the Big Finish line, a uh, couple years from where we're on going now. And we are trying to cover it. The idea is chronologically for the older stories and then peppering newest stories in. So one's in the, that middle area, like that sort of later, close to around 100 number release era is going to get a short change as we work up to it, I know. But once we work up to those stories, we'll definitely be covering those short stories like basically when we get to the era. So have some patience, but for sure we will be talking about
1: them. One of the great things about Big Finish, of course, is that there is such a range of material for us to talk about. We are never going to run out of stories. And, and that's part of the joy of Big Finish and part of the joy of Doctor Who. There's always going to be more stories to discuss.
0: Exactly. To send us more points of view and more recommendations, you can send us an email at talkingwhotoyou at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter at Talking Who to you. You can also find me on Twitter, at Keviko, that is K-E-V-V-Y-K-O. And speaking of those newest stories, why don't you tell them what we're covering next week?
1: Well, next week we're going to step forward two regenerations, and we're going to be covering the Tenth Doctor. So, we're going to be doing the new Tenth Doctor box set, that will be box set number two. We're looking forward to returning to Visit David Tennant's performance in the role, and for the first time, we'll be having Billy Piper along for the ride as well, as she returns as Rose. So... We hope you'll join us for that, but until then, keep talking.